everyone. Welcome to the Ridiculously Good Podcast, where we talk to people who are ridiculously good at what they do, learn how they got to where they are, and uncover first-hand insights about their industries. On today's episode, we speak to Chris Ye, author of the best-selling book, Blitzscaling, The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. It explains how to build world-changing companies like Amazon, Airbnb, and now Tyndall in record time. A writer, investor, and entrepreneur, Chris has had the ringside seat in the world of startups and scale-ups since 1995. Chris shares with us how he came up with the concept of blitzscaling, how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected businesses to scale, how to blitzscale in ways that are ridiculously good, his greatest life lessons, and so much more. This episode is led by our guest host, Rachel Conrad. Hi, everybody. My name is Rachel Conrad, and I am a board member here at Next Gen Foods and other companies that are trying to solve global warming and make the food system sustainable. Um, you guys might not know this about me, but I started my career a couple of decades ago as a journalist. So I love to interview people. And this guest is actually very, very special to me. In fact, in the late 1990s, I was actually working as a rookie reporter in Detroit, Michigan, in the Midwest. I was covering the old school uh, gross polluting auto industry. I was writing for an old school newspaper whose product was literally printed on dead trees. And I was living in one of the most troubled cities in the U.S. Rust Belt. Okay. And back then, I literally dreamed about coming to Silicon Valley and living the life of Chris Ye. Seriously. This guy has a pedigree that I used to think could unlock all doors, okay? He grew up in Santa Monica in LA, the heart of American cool. He went to Stanford undergrad. He has a Harvard MBA. He went into digital marketing and management at some of the most buzzy startups. You know, when he was in his 20s, while I was in the Rust Belt, he was hanging out with entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, founders, these people who were literally creating e-commerce and the internet as we know it. And he truly had a front row seat to the making of Silicon Valley, not the HBO miniseries, but actual Silicon Valley as it exists today. I mean, my God, what a life did this guy have? But am I jealous of Chris Ye? No. In fact, I don't hate him at all. I actually deeply respect him because now he's giving back all of his amazing formative experiences and life lessons to the rest of us schmoes from the Midwest and elsewhere, right? As a writer, mentor, an entrepreneur. Um, most recently, Chris co-wrote along with Reed Hoffman, his friend, the major business uh, success story book called Blitzscaling, which explains how to build world-changing companies like Amazon and Alibaba and Airbnb in record time. He's been a consultant to hundreds of companies from the classic sort of garage entrepreneurs to Fortune 50 captains of industry. And he's helped all of them transform their businesses. So it should come as no surprise to people listening to this podcast that blitzscaling is basically required reading at many startups, including NextGen Foods. And in many ways, I would actually say NextGen Foods is the, the poster child of blitzscaling. 
you know, the founders, Andre and Timo, they met at this Singaporean business incubator. They raised $30 million, the largest seed round in the history of plant-based foods. They built a team. They launched their first product in only 11 months. They went international a few months later, and they're going to be coming to the U.S. Uh, pretty soon. So, uh, Chris... I want to thank you for inspiring NextGen and all of us and for serving as an investor to NextGen, a guy who advises the management team. It's absolutely great to have you here. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Rachel. And I do want to mention that the television show Silicon Valley is frighteningly realistic. I can vouch for that. In fact, sometimes when I watch it, it is like ripping open a scab. It's kind of painful. <laughs> yes, people think that it's all made up. And the answer is, it might be exaggerated slightly, but every crazy thing that happens on that show is based on something that actually happened here in Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been to some of those parties. I know some of those people who live, you know, eight people to a, a ranch in Palo Alto who are paying $7,000 a month. I got that whole script. Yes. So, okay, so my first question for you, you know, as I mentioned, you are living a very different life for me in the Midwest, right? You, you grew up in LA and then you went to Stanford in the mid 90s. Was it all that I dreamed it was? What was it like back then? Take us back. Well, there's a saying I like to use, which is that a fish doesn't know it's in water. So for me, growing up in Los Angeles was just the way you grow up. And I didn't realize things like, well, you know, it's unusual that you can go to the set of ER and meet George Clooney. That's not something that happens to everyone all the time. And that was because my sister worked in the industry on shows like ER and Baywatch and things like that. And then, of course, when I went up to Stanford, I just thought, well, this is the way college must be. And it didn't strike me necessarily as absolutely crazy that, you know, there are Nobel Prize winners teaching classes and stuff like that. So I feel very fortunate. I will say that now that I've had a chance to see a bit more of the world, I appreciate just how lucky I was to grow up when I did and, and where I did. And so I am internally grateful for those things. But the good news is that so much of that spirit of innovation, of creativity, of trying new things is now spreading around the world. And of course, NextGen Foods is a great example of that. The fact that the company has grown at such an incredible rate and is expanding globally is an example of how that Silicon Valley spirit now permeates the whole world. So you are not this sort of sheltered child of the uh, SoCal or the West Coast. After Stanford, you went to the East Coast, to Harvard, sort of, you know, the bastion of the ancien regime of, of America. What was that transition like and how did that contrast affect you? So it was a big shock to go to Boston. And the main reason was there was a cultural shock, but there was just a basic physical shock. So I grew up in Southern California. When I went to Stanford as an undergraduate, one of my big worries was that it was going to be too cold for me because Northern California is colder than Southern California. Little did I know what lay in store for me. So I moved to Boston in the fall of 1995 to join a company called D.E. Shaw & Company, which is best known these days, besides being one of the world's most successful hedge funds, as the company Jeff Bezos worked for before he left the company and founded Amazon. And before you ask, uh, I did not overlap with Jeff. He had left about 18 months before I got there. Presumably, if we had overlap, my life might be a little different. Not necessarily better, but 
definitely different. Maybe I would have already gotten a chance to go up into space. Who knows? But when I went out to Boston, the big shift was just, you know, within a couple of months, it started to snow. And I grew up in Southern California dreaming of someday having snow around me. And it was great for the first day and great for the second day. And by the third day, I was sick of it. And that was the reason why I stayed in Boston for a number of years, but ultimately came back to Silicon Valley. And I feel very fortunate. Again, I work for D.E. Shaw, which is a company run by some of the smartest people in the world. The company was run by computer scientists with PhDs, physics PhDs, math PhDs, running these quantitative trading strategies. Uh, my first manager had a PhD and had done chip design for Digital Equipment Corporation. So I was surrounded by brilliant people. But they weren't just brilliant in terms of, hey, you know, I know computer science and how to build things, they were brilliant in other ways as well. The person who recruited me to D.E. Shaw is a fellow named Charles Ardai, who is a managing director there, but who is also an award-winning mystery novelist and runs something called Hard Case Crime, which is a publishing house. And his wife was one of the people who came in with me at D.E. Shaw. We actually sat in cubicles next to each other. Her name is Naomi Novik, and she's now an award-winning novelist. She wrote a whole series of books called the Temeraire series about dragons in the Napoleonic Age. And she's also written a series of phenomenal books since then. One of them, Uprooted, was named by Amazon one of the top 100 fantasy and science fiction books of all time. So I was very fortunate to be surrounded by incredibly interesting people at an incredibly interesting time. That's amazing. God, that's incredible. And tell me a little bit, I, I am self-taught. I did not go to graduate school, get my MBA. So my question for you is, it seems like you have a, a Harvard MBA with a focus on entrepreneurship. How do you actually teach entrepreneurship? Isn't that a little bit like teaching intuition? I mean, how do you do that? Yes. Yeah, so it is very difficult to teach entrepreneurship. What we could learn in business school are things like, well, how does venture financing work? So Bill Salman, a legendary professor there, teaches a great class on entrepreneurial finance. And that's how I learned about things like liquidation preferences and all those fancy terms, pari passu, which get tossed around all the time. These are things that, you know, it's difficult to learn. Now, back in these days, you could pick up a book like Venture Deals by my friend Brad Feld and, and learn some of that lingo. But back in those days, it was all locked away in textbooks. So business school is very handy for that. But on the other hand, in terms of teaching entrepreneurship, the only way to learn entrepreneurship is to do it. And so I'd been doing it a bit at D.E. Shaw because I was working on startup initiatives. But then once I actually became a founder myself, that itself was the most educational possible experience. I often tell founders who are going through their first experience, I'm like, listen, you've got to write this down. You've got to tuck away these memories because there's no time like the first time. And you are just learning faster than you will ever learn at any point in your life. And whether this company succeeds or fails, these are going to be memories that will be important for the rest of your life and career. And I certainly felt that way uh, after I went to business school. So I went to business school. I left DSHA to go to business school because I wanted to learn more about how the world typically did business. And then while I was in business school, instead of going and doing a summer job, I figured that in the summer of 1999, it was probably the only time in history venture capitalists would be dumb enough to give money to business school students to start companies. So I actually started a company in 1999 
1979 with one of my old high school classmates who had become an internet millionaire and one of my Stanford classmates who was a top gun programmer. And we formed a company and my objective was to build a company and sell it before I had to go back to school in the fall. Now, I didn't quite make it, so I ended up having to raise money from investors and venture capitalists. And then what happened was I brought in someone else to run the company as CEO, and then I commuted back and forth between Boston and Silicon Valley during my second year at business school, flying to Silicon Valley on Sundays, going to meetings on Mondays and Tuesdays, and taking a red-eye flight back on Tuesday night so I could get back in time for 8 a.m. classes on Wednesday on the East Coast. So that was an experience I would not advise anyone to repeat. But again, hugely educational experience, intense, many mistakes. I made tons of mistakes. I learned a lot from those mistakes. And ultimately, we weren't fast enough. I had wanted to get the company sold. I knew one of the reasons I started the company is I knew that by June of 2000, the boom would be over or on its way out. And so we tried desperately to get it to the point where we could sell the company before that happened. Didn't quite make it, so the company ultimately failed. We returned the money to investors. And one of my investors commented, hey, you gave me back five cents on the dollar for this particular vintage or this particular fund, that's a top quartile return. I'm like, well, that <laughs> makes me feel a little bit better, I guess. And so I found myself, you know, let's call this 2002 or so, a failed startup founder without a job in Silicon Valley with a pregnant wife. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a cliffhanger right there. So tell us, you know, for a lot, by the way, a lot of people listening to this are from all over the world, right? And they, they've probably heard that Silicon Valley famously loves to celebrate failure at least once early in your career, hopefully. Um, but from your perspective, you know, what were the lessons that you learned from this failure? Take us to the next phase in the cliffhanger. How does this continue? Absolutely. And of course, the good news is it's always easier to talk about failure when the success finally comes. And it makes it a lot easier to look back on the, the old days with fondness as opposed to terror and, and screaming. So what ended up happening is a combination of things. The main and most important lesson I learned from running a startup is the classic lesson of the great screenwriter William Goldman, who once said, nobody knows anything. He was talking about Hollywood, but he's also talking about Silicon Valley. Many of the mistakes I made occurred because I said, well, these people must know what they're doing. It doesn't make sense to me, but I guess I'll go along. And what I eventually realized is all those people were thinking, well, Chris isn't objecting, so I guess this is the right thing to do. We might as well do this. And what I learned from that is, listen, in life, things have to make sense. If something doesn't make sense, then ask the person who's suggesting it, hey, explain this to me. And if they can't explain it to you in a way that satisfies you, don't do it. Trust your own instincts in terms of what does and doesn't make sense. If you're able to think about things in a rigorous and logical way, you can logic your way to a lot of insights. And so one of the things I learned from that is not to trust blindly in authority, but rather to really question and, and think things through for myself. Now, something that I would later learn that I hadn't learned at that point is the other important lesson of blitzscaling, which is that... In addition to learning new things, you have to unlearn old things because the things that made you successful before or worked two or three years ago might not work today. And so I developed a whole set of lessons 
from the dot-com bust that involved things like being capital efficient and being careful with money that I then had to later unlearn when it came to blitz scaling. Because again, different lessons apply at different times and you have to learn how to unlearn if you're going to succeed. That's great. That is a great point. Okay, so uh, have one provocative question and then I'll, I'll ask you a, a little bit of a more of a real one. My, my previous boss, Carlos Ghosn, who's the CEO and chairman of Renault Nissan Mitsubishi, used to tell me that you learn much more from other people's mistakes than their failures. Um, I'm wondering if you think that is true. And um, when you're looking at other people and you've seen some mistakes, give us, give us one or two examples of that and what you learned from them. So I would agree that one of the things that you can absolutely do is to learn from other people's mistakes. And it's called the principle of surrogacy. And the fact is, we're not as special as we think we are. And when somebody else, we think, oh, we're completely unique. We're not like them at all. But if we were put in the same situation, they would probably do similar things. So looking at some of the phenomenal failures that have happened throughout the startup world over the years, I mean, just think about some of the things that went horribly wrong. WeWork is probably one of the biggest ones. Now, there are certain mistakes that are pretty obvious, like don't take marijuana into a private plane, don't lie to people, don't self-deal, and so on and so forth. But a big part of it is really understanding, you know, just because you can get money doesn't mean you should take it. Just because you can grow doesn't mean it makes sense. Right? Blitzscaling is all about growth, but it's about growth when that growth serves a purpose. When that growth conveys some sort of long-standing and long-lasting competitive advantage. Growing for growth's sake, if you're losing money along the way, doesn't always make sense. Okay, one more question from, from the ancient past. There's a lot of people listening who would think, like I did, man, going to Harvard to get your MBA, that's like the pinnacle of, of academia, of power. Uh, you know, it, it unlocks so many doors. Given how much you learned as a failed entrepreneur versus what you learned in those two years at Harvard Business School, which, by the way, now cost you $80,000 a year to get, would you do it, a do-over, would you go to Harvard again and get your MBA? Or would you just recommend to other people to just go straight into entrepreneurship if that's where your head is at? So this is one of those wonderful questions that I have answered to people over the years. And one of the benefits of having this background, going to Stanford, having a Harvard MBA, is that I can actually tell people, you know, in your case, I don't think you should go. And they won't say, oh, well, you're, you're, you're not, uh, you're biased. I'm like, no, I, I went to these places. I understand them. And so I'm not biased when I provide this advice. And I have various friends I've given advice to about these things over the years. So let me give you two great examples, two very good friends of mine. One was Ben Kaznoka, who is somebody I've known since he was 15 and I was 30, which is astonishing. And he was a very successful young man who started a company and also wrote his memoirs all before he went to college. One of the things that he asked me is, well, should I go to college? And different people gave him different advice. Some people said, college is a waste of time. You shouldn't bother going. And other people said, it'll be the worst mistake of your life if you don't go to college and get your degree. And Ben asked me as well, what do you think? Because he was asking everyone. This is a smart thing to do. If you have smart friends, you should ask them. And I said, Ben, you don't need to go to college. The things that college conveys, the ability to think, you already have them. One of the reasons I hang out with you is because 
I find being in your presence thought-provoking. And that doesn't happen a lot. So your brain already works in a very effective way. You don't need the things that college is going to give you. And so the people who are telling you, you have to go to college and it'll be a terrible mistake if you don't go to college, they're wrong. They're just wrong. They're projecting their own lives onto yours. However, what I do predict is that you should attend college, but then drop out. You should attend college because if you don't, you'll always wonder, did I miss out on something? Was there some experience that I should have had that I didn't get? And you remember, even folks like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they all spent some time at college before dropping out. So they got some sense of that experience so that when you drop out, you understand what you're leaving behind. And I told him, I predict that you will go to college and that you will drop out after one year because you'll realize that you don't need it and that it's holding you back. And as it turns out, he dropped out after 18 months, after two semesters and an additional one. And I had dinner with him last month and he said, you know, that last semester was a mistake. You're right. I should have just dropped out after the first year, but I was stubborn and I thought, you know, I can keep this going for a while. I'm like, well, you know, I'm glad to hear those words. You were right. It always feels good. Another friend of mine is the personal finance guru, Ramit Sethi, who runs I Will Teach You To Be Rich. He has a fantastic podcast, the I Will Teach You To Be Rich podcast, and many other things. He has a whole media empire. And in Ramit's case, it was slightly different. He had these phenomenal scholarships that he had won, and those scholarships would pay for any school he wanted to go to. And so he came to me, he said, you know, I have these scholarships that would still pay for me to go to business school. Should I just do it? I mean, you went to business school. It was great for you. And I said, Rumi, what the hell are you thinking? The opportunity cost of going to business school for you right now is so enormously high. It wasn't that high for me back when I went to business school because I was young. I was early in my career and it could absolutely provide a boost to me. For what you're doing as a guru, it would have very little impact. All it would do is take you out of circulation for two years. And again, you're thinking about it all wrong. You're thinking about it from the perspective of, hey, I have this wasting asset of these, uh, these scholarships that I should use, and when instead you should be thinking about how is the best way I can invest my time. And he did, took my advice, did not go to business school, and has been very happy with results ever since. So broadly speaking, the question becomes, when should I go to a great college? Or when should I go to a great business school? And it's very important to note that you get a lot more benefit from going to a storied, high reputation, high brand college or business school than you go get for going to a, tradition, a regular one? And the answer is, you should go if the alternative is not necessarily any better. So if your alternative to going to college is that you have a business that's already growing at an enormous rate, like the Facebook was for Mark Zuckerberg, you should drop out or not go. I do generally provide the same advice I provide to Ben, which is you'll always wonder what it was like if you don't at least go for some of the time. So go for some of the time. And if it's really not working out, drop out after a year. For business school, it's a little bit different. The question is, do you need the MBA to do the things that you want to do? And in the case of somebody who is an entrepreneur, the answer is probably not. It's not like having an MBA makes venture capitalists here in Silicon Valley or anywhere else say, wow, we really got to fund that person, right? They learned that lesson after funding people like me during the dot-com boom. So it's more a question of, can I get value out of this? And the ways you get value out of going to a business school like Harvard Business School, by the way, are things like learning about the general world of business and how people think about things, which is really essential if you're going to sell to corporations. 
It's learning how to actually connect with others and to speak. Like I was fortunate enough at Stanford to teach public speaking, so I didn't need a lot of training. But for a lot of people, they're not used to that kind of public speaking, and business school forces you to go through that. That itself is also very useful. And the final thing, of course, for both kinds of elite institutions is that it builds a tremendous network. You meet incredible people, and if you stay in touch with them, they'll be phenomenally valuable over the years. So many of the people who I went to business school with are incredibly important folks now. One great example is Stéphane Bancel, who is the CEO of Moderna, who became very famous over the course of this pandemic. He was one of my classmates, just one of many different classmates before he became a world-famous billionaire and vaccine savior. And knowing these folks turns out to be very useful over the years. Although I did try, I asked, hey, can I get the vaccine early? He's like, no, I can't do that for you. So what you do is to follow the generic Chrissier advice, which is go to a place where there's lots of smart, interesting, ambitious, hardworking people, and then try to stay in touch with them over the years. Because now, all of a sudden, you're not just relying on your own hard work and initiative. You're able to leverage the success of everyone else that you know. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. You really unpacked the the benefits and the opportunity cost of business school. I was at a a very similar point in in my life in my early 30s, and I actually thought about going to business school, and I kind of decided, well, you know, I might still do that. I started applying, and then I just took this rando flyer on a company that no one had ever heard of called Tesla, working directly for Elon. And that was almost three years of my life. And I call it a MBA per day kind of scenario. He taught me all of the foundational sort of fundamentals of how I still to this day do communications and technology, you know, deal making, all that stuff. So yeah, I really think that you have to weigh it in light of, you know, what what you might be missing. So great, great explanation. Exactly. And for somebody like Elon, going to business school is a complete waste. He's a fascinating figure. We could spend multiple hours just talking about him, I'm sure. Yeah, he actually did go to graduate school for exactly one day at Stanford, and then he dropped out. So uh, yeah, he, you can count him in the ranks of dropouts. He didn't even give it a year, though. All of us at NextGen know the Bible of blitzscaling. But for, for those just tuning in from uh, the studio audience, tell us what it is. Um, and also tell us, how did you come up with that name? Excellent question. So the key insight behind blitzscaling is this. We live in a world where there are more and more winner-take-most markets. And what we mean by winner-take-most market is once you achieve a certain critical level of scale and you become the market leader, it becomes almost impossible for someone to unseat you. You become an enduring market leader who has the ability to dominate the market and print money for decades. And that's why companies are so valuable today. I mean, just imagine we have these trillion-dollar companies like Amazon and Apple and Google, and they're trillion-dollar companies because they have the ability to print money. At the end of the day, they're money machines. And that comes from being uh, the winners of winner-take-most markets. In Apple's case, it's the winner-take-most market for phones and for uh, some of the other services like the iTunes music and so on and so forth. For Google, it's the winner-take-most in the field of online advertising, and so on and so forth. So that's why you want to be a blitzscaler, so you can win those markets. Now, the thing is, if you're competing against your competitors in such a market, what you need to do is you need to grow faster than they do. You need to achieve scale faster than they do. And that's where blitzscaling comes in. 
It's the prioritization of rapid growth and change by prioritizing speed over efficiency, even when things are uncertain. And that's something that's uncomfortable. Prioritizing speed over efficiency, especially in the face of uncertainty, it's risky. And people do not always have the risk tolerance to do it. But the people who do, and of course, Elon is a great example of someone who has that kind of risk tolerance, can achieve amazing things because their willingness to be more aggressive in the competition allows them to win those markets and allows them to therefore change the world. And the way we came up with the term is we were talking about it. We were using the term, you know, going from a startup to a scale up and how do you scale up? It struck us that we really needed a term that captured the kind of extreme growth and aggressiveness that we were looking for. And at this point, I read and I don't even remember exactly who came up with the idea. But one of us said, well, what about blitz scaling? And it's a little controversial because if you start unpacking the term blitz scaling, blitz is lightning in German. It, it was used as a term during World War II, Blitzkrieg. It was not actually a German term, ironically enough. It was coined by British military strategists. But Blitzkrieg was one of the things that happened during World War II. And guess what? The people who were practicing were not the greatest people in the world, as we all know. So that was somewhat controversial. But after trying a variety of different terms and alternatives, we finally concluded, you know, this is still the best word. It captures what's going on. It, it captures people's imagination. And looking back on what's happened since the book came out three years ago and how the term has become broadly used, uh, we think we made the right choice. It's a great name. Yeah, I love the name. It's just awesome. Thank you for, for coining that one. One of the questions that I had, you know, this is very specific. I've seen this. I was employee approximately number 150 at Tesla and 100 at Impossible Foods. One of the really difficult aspects of blitz scaling is actually hiring because it's one thing to have in principle, you know, the, the idea of fast growth. It's also another thing to have an awesome CFO who can fundraise and who can enable the economic engine to unlock that growth. But hiring is often where the rubber hits the road. How do you blitz scale hiring? This is something that NextGen is going to go through very soon, right? And it's something that pretty much anyone who wants to get beyond that hump of a core group of uh, programmers or other very, very small company feel is going to have to go through. How do you do it? Well, that is a really important point because one of the things we tell people about blitz scaling is to blitz scale successfully, you need both human capital and financial capital. And ironically enough, it's the human capital that is harder to come by. It's not that it's easy to get the financial capital, but money is fungible and it moves wherever it needs to move instantaneously, whereas people are a very different story. So some of the key techniques of blitzscaling hiring are as follows. The first is you always are hiring. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that you're just handing out job offers left and right, although I'll tell you a funny story about Uber that will really have this hit home. But the other element is are always on the lookout for great people. Whether or not you have an official job opening for that position or not, you're always looking for amazing people. And when you go out to dinner with friends and you meet someone new, when you are on vacation, whatever you happen to be doing, always be looking for amazing people because you can never have too many amazing people in your organization. The second thing is 
hiring is something that needs to be a priority for the organization. And that means that you, A, need to have dedicated resources focused on hiring. Right? Very early on, you should be hiring professionals who are talent executives who are just going to dedicate themselves to nothing but figuring out how you can get the best people in. And with that, you also need to have your leaders set an example and have everyone else follow along in the sense that hiring is a top priority. So yes, there's that code review. Yes, there's that meeting. Yes, there's all of these things. But if you have a phone screen set up, you do the phone screen. If you're checking references, you check the reference. All those things need to come first because the whole thing about hiring is it's the most important way to build up the capabilities of the organization. Yeah, it's tempting to focus on these short-term things that are really urgent, just do them yourself. But if you do that, you're robbing yourself of the ability to actually improve the capacity of the organization by bringing in other great people. The final thing to say is, even though I've said it's really important to hire dedicated people who are really focused on hiring, you also need to make hiring something that everyone thinks about. And that goes beyond just saying, well, we have a referral program for you to refer your friends in. It means have everyone think about the importance of hiring and everyone think about when they run across someone who could be a great member of the team. And that is a great time to bring up the example of both PayPal and Uber. So with PayPal, one of the things that Peter did very early on, Peter, by which I mean Peter Thiel, is he said, what we're going to do is we ask everyone at PayPal, hey, who are your three smartest friends who do not currently work at this company? And then they would go out and try to recruit those people. And it turns hiring into something that's really a network approach rather than just having a single department focused on it. Now, Uber took it to the next level. Uber asked incoming engineers, who are your three smartest friends who are not working at this company? And once they got those people's names, they sent them offer letters. Whoa. Yes. So Uber was growing so quickly. They're like, we need great engineers. We need great technical people. Listen, if we hired someone, their friends are probably also really good. So we're just going to send them an offer letter. Good God. That's incredible. Yes. Okay. So, so I have a question. I'm going to be a little bit of a provocateur. Mm-hmm. In the sort of post B2, post Black Lives Matter era, is this approach, this highly networked approach, basically going to get you a bunch more Harvard, Stanford dude bros who kind of look the same, who act the same, who have a similar demographic? Can you still hire that way in 2021 and still get, hopefully, a diverse slate of candidates um, with the diverse panel, with, with all of the benefits that come with diversity? Absolutely. And this is a really important point, which is why it's a good thing you brought it up. So one of the big dangers of network hiring is homophily, which is that people hire people who are like them. Birds of a feather flock together. And historically, this has led to the, I think you called it the Stanford-Harvard dude bro approach to hiring. And that has caused an enormous number of problems. Now, there are two specific ways to address that. The first way is to make sure that as you're building out your team, you actually have people who who have diverse networks, who know people who look different from them. And that has to start with the founders, right? The founders need to be thinking all along. And by the way, if you're a founder or a potential founder, if you're thinking about founding a company someday, one of the most important things you can do is have a very diverse set of friends and contacts. 
because those are the people who can help you in unexpected ways. And they will also help you make sure that your company can be diverse from the start. One of the things I've observed about diversity and inclusion is that it's very difficult for someone to be the only employee in a particular category. Right? It actually is challenging and hard. I've heard people talk about this before. It's like, hey, do I have to always be the one to raise my hand? Am I going to speak for all members of my particular gender or ethnicity or background? It's really an unfair burden to place upon people. So it's really critical you build in that diversity from the start. And that is something that we definitely encourage founders to do. However, we recognize that not everyone has had the foresight to do this. And so the other element of it is that's why you have dedicated talent personnel who can focus on these things. Now, one of the big lies that is told is that, well, this diversity and inclusion thing, it is a pipeline issue. And if Stanford just churned out more of these folks, we would just go ahead and hire them. Well, that's absurd, right? If you say that talent is really important to you, then you should be going to go and get that talent. And uh, the analogy I use, which I shared with the folks from Management Leaders of Tomorrow, and John Rice over there has used this in interview, interviews, actually, is just imagine if ExxonMobil or Shell said, you know what, we really want oil, but we're not willing to go to where the oil is. We want to wait until the oil comes to us. When the oil comes to us, then we'll put it into our tankers and send it to a refinery and start selling it. So it's total BS. If you are an organization and you want diverse hiring, there are ways to do it, right? And if you want, if you, for example, say, you know what, we need more representatives of this particular group, guess what? Every college campus has a black student engineers or women on women engineers or what have you. Any group that exists already has an interest group on the campus and you can go to them. And they're probably pretty happy if you say, listen, we're really interested in recruiting your members. But it's the laziness of the companies that just sort of say, well, whoever happens to apply, that's who we're going to consider. That's the problem. High five. I love that answer. That was great. I have a related question around scale up. I've been, you know, Tesla was, you know, employee 100 and went to several thousand possible, not quite that, that big of a, of a blitz, but, but very big. How do you grow yet maintain a unique and authentic corporate culture? Because this is a bugaboo, sticky wicket for a lot of companies. How do you scale up without blanding out? So this is another big challenge, and it is more of an art than a science, but there's a couple of guidelines that I like to provide to people. The first is, if you want to have a strong culture, which is really important because having a strong culture means that people know how to make decisions when a founder or executive isn't there, which is really essential to making the right decisions and being able to act quickly, what you need to do is you need to make sure that the culture is explicit. So what I mean is, if you have a way of doing things and you just sort of say, well, every, come join the company and you'll figure it out. Guess what? That's a slow process. And there's going to be often mistranslation and misperception that slows down that process even further. So having a very explicit statement of what your values are is critical. And of course, the great example of this that everyone knows is the famed Netflix culture deck. By the way, Netflix is going through a fascinating thing right now because of Dave Chappelle's special in terms of how they're going to navigate the feelings of their employees relative to some of the programming decisions that they've made. 
And I have no doubt that this is going to be a big part of the culture going forward and something that people are going to have to figure out. They got to understand that employees have views about the world. And on the one hand, you do not necessarily say, well, everyone has, every individual employee has veto power over what the organization does. That obviously is impossible. But on the other hand, when you make a decision that so many of your employees disagree with, you got to look at the mirror and say, well, did we actually consider this? Did we make sure that there was a broad set of people in the room when this decision was made? So that is one element of culture. Have that explicit statement of culture. Make sure it's very scalable because if it's not explicit, it's not scalable. It's not easy to transmit. The second element of it is so much of the culture does come from the founders. Obviously, you were at Tesla. Tesla is a reflection of Elon. Elon's personal touch goes a long way. It cannot scale up to tens of thousands of employees. They cannot see him on a regular basis. But what it can do is help you really shape that initial cohort of people. When we did our research for the book, we found over and over again this strange magic number of 500 People would stay involved in the hiring for the first 500 employees. That was true at Google. That was true at Workday. That was true at Airbnb. In each case, unbidden, the founder said, oh, we made sure that we were deeply involved and interviewed every single candidate up through employee number 500. Now, why is it employee number 500? My speculation is that's basically the number at which a company that is growing at 100% a year, that's the point at which if you are a founder, you don't have time to do anything else other than interview if you're trying to interview all candidates. So you eventually have to give that up. But having that very heavy founder involvement early on is one of the things that helps really convey that culture to everyone involved. And if as a founder you believe your culture is important, then you should show it with the time that you're willing to spend. The final element of culture is how you think about it and how you enforce it. So from a culture standpoint, I always encourage people to think about cultural addition rather than cultural fit. When people think purely about cultural fit, they're basically saying, hey, set what we have right now in stone and maintain that status quo forever, which even if it weren't problematic from a diversity standpoint, is obviously a bad idea just from a business standpoint. The idea that whatever you happen to be right now is the best form that you're always going to need for the future through all the changes that are going to happen is utterly absurd. So you need to continue adapting and believe that the people that you're bringing in are going to add to the cultural mix that you have and add things that you really wanted to add because you were missing them before. So that is a big part of how you think about cultural addition. But when it comes to cultural fit, there is some element of cultural fit that's there in terms of we have to agree on certain core values. Those core values are things like how do we relate to each other and what are the things that we think are the most important virtues. These are not things which you can just sort of say, well, for diversity's sake, we're going to disagree because we believe that honesty is important. But, you know, for diversity's sake, we need some liars in, right? That doesn't make any sense either. So you need to have people who are really enforcing those core cultural values, not the surface level things, but the things that are deep down. And that's where the practice of having culture interviewers, people who are not in the chain of command, are not going to have their lives made easier by having a new hire come in need to be there and be able to pull the ripcord and say, hold on, stop. This person does not actually believe in the same kinds of values we believe in. And the reason you have to make sure they're not in the chain of command is that when companies are growing this quickly, you're just so desperate to be able to actually sleep 
and take a shower and everything else. You're like, you know, I just need to hire someone. It's too tempting to sort of say, well, maybe they're not exactly right, but, you know, probably it'll be okay. Whereas somebody who is disinterested can say, no, this person is not a fit. I love that. I love that very pragmatic, practical advice. Have these sort of cultural ambassador in your interview panel who is not in the chain of command. I love that. That's brilliant. Okay, so you wrote your book in three years ago before times, right? I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. How has COVID impacted companies' ability to blitz scale? You know, you're talking to a group that is already highly distributed around the world. Next Gen Foods has the CEO now living in the United States, has a group of people in Europe, in Singapore. How has this affected blitzscaling? Is the whole concept now a little bit pre-2020? So this is one of the fascinating things, right? And it was funny, when the book came out in 2018, there were already people saying, oh, wow, you know, this book came out too late. I mean, is there that much growth left ahead? And of course, that's absurd. That's like the people who said, you know, Amazon, this is a $20 billion company. How big could it possibly get? Time to get out now. Right? It's foolish to think that. You always have to be looking and saying, look, there's more opportunities to grow. And the world is more awesome and more amazing than we can imagine. So I think that there's still plenty of opportunities for growth for blitzscaling. And I think that it's as timely as ever. The pandemic has definitely had an impact and it has had both the positive impact and the negative impact. And people often overlook this particular negative impact, which I'm going to go into. The positive impact is by forcing everyone into adopting the tools of remote work, we have really made it possible for people to hire the best talent from all around the world. And I think I remember I was speaking with someone in an in-person conference not too long ago. And they said, you know, the gateway drug is the first time you hire someone who's not at the headquarters. Because you're like, well, we talked to the people who are local and we found someone who's a B plus, but I found someone who is an A plus who lives in another time zone or another city. And beforehand, you're like, well, of course, we all have to get together every day. And you just keep looking. If B plus is not good enough, keep searching and we'll find someone eventually. Now, with remote work, you can say, once we find someone who's an A plus, we hire them. We bring them in. And remember, we talked about before, always be hiring. I mean, now that you have so many more people available in your talent pool, you should be hiring the best people you possibly can. Of course, this is not just a one-way street. It means that other companies in other areas can now come and poach people in your own backyard. So the war for talent gets even stronger. But the overall fact is if a company is strong, if it's doing very well, if it has a good culture, if it has a good story, it's now able to compete for talent in far more areas than it did before. And so I think it just increases the mobility of talent and increases the ability of the strongest players to attract the best people. However, there is a downside that a lot of people are overlooking, which is that companies are not just driven by work. Companies are also social organizations. And one of the analogies I use is I say, you know, a lot of companies have talked about how, wow, it was so seamless when we shifted from in-person to remote work and we're able to just keep going without a problem. Thank goodness, obviously, the world has managed to keep going and the economy has continued along. I'm really grateful for that. 
But one of the things that has enabled that is the fact that people had pre-existing relationships that they had formed during the pre-pandemic times, largely through in-person interaction. And all of that social capital is essentially a fossil fuel deposit that we are burning down during the course of this pandemic. And more importantly, as we're hiring people from all around the world, if we do not intentionally think about how we are going to create and start depositing more of that social capital, if we only focus on getting the tasks of work done, then we're not going to replenish that fossil fuel of social capital. And we're going to have companies that are going to run into problems because they lack that undercurrent of social capital and micro-relationships that help hold the organization together. So a couple of the things that I have suggested to companies who are going through this. One is to adopt something that a lot of, of, of remote first organizations have done in the past, which is to have regular gatherings of the entire clan, so to speak. Right? And so companies like Buffer or Automatic, uh, who I happen to know because the CEOs are friends of mine, they would do things like go ahead and gather everyone together once a quarter at some sort of resort. They just buy out the place and it's a place where they have good internet and everyone can work and you work for half the day and then you also vacation for half the day. And that's a really efficient way to build those social bonds. You don't need to see people every single day in order to build bonds. But you do need to actually see them now and then. And so building those bonds in person on a periodic basis is one thing you need to do. The other thing you could do is in between, and this helps extend it so you don't have to do it every month, which would be too much for especially those of us with families, but you know, like once a quarter or a couple times a year. What you can also do is you can build remote or virtual socialization in. And by that, I don't mean these happy hour things that companies do. I mean, sure, go ahead, do them. But it's more like the micro-socialization. The socialization we miss is not the happy hour. The socialization we miss is the 30 seconds we chat with someone sitting next to us before the meeting starts. Or the 30 seconds we chat with someone as we're on our way to the bathroom or on our way to the kitchen or what have you. There are these serendipitous things that happen they're relatively short, they're micro-socializations, but they are a powerful force. And so one of the things I tell companies and teams is in your Zoom meetings, take advantage of the breakout room functionality, break people into groups of two at random, which is fine. Give them two minutes to talk and catch up with each other and then bring them back into the room. This does two important things. One is that they're depositing that social capital, they're having these micro-interactions, they're building up those relationships, and the other is, if you have a meeting where someone's been droning on for God knows how long, this actually wakes everyone else up as well. I love that. I've actually um, seen some great examples of just wicked smart use of the function just for micro-engagements. And, and it is very meaningful, especially with new people. I also love the analogy that uh, this, this is the last relic of the fossil fuel um, that we're burning down, right? So I wanted to ask you uh, just two more, two more really quick mm -hmm. questions. There's been some controversial studies around how companies that are formed during this sort of fulcrum of a recession or a major downturn are actually more successful in the long term. How would you handicap companies that are formed um, during COVID in 2020, 2021? What do you think their uh, life expectancy is going to be? So if I were to guess, I would say that their life expectancy is going to be pretty much in line with any other time. And the reason I say that is 
we have these offsetting things that are going on. One is the improvement of the talent side that I described. The other is the sort of fossil fuel approach to social capital. I think these are largely going to offset. And I think that the other factor that people are missing is the companies that are not being formed during COVID times. Right? If you're forming a company during COVID times, that actually benefits you because you are saying, you know what? I believe in this so much that even when we're in these challenging circumstances, we're going to form the company. That's similar to what happens during tough times in general, although these are not necessarily economically tough times in general. They are tough times in the sense of, you know, everyone has had greater salience of mortality and risk. And so I think people are a little more conservative than they otherwise would be. But I think it's going to end up being just about normal and par for the course when all is said and done. Great. Okay. Now, last question. This is the ridiculously good podcast. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, Chris Yeh, how do you blitz scale ridiculously well? So the wonderful thing about blitz scaling ridiculously good is that there are things that make it inherently blitz scalable. So one of the things that we discussed way back when about blitz scaling is that the core focus is on things like distribution. How do you get more people to learn about something, try something, and adopt something? And it is so much easier to blitz scale something that is ridiculously good than it is to blitz scaling something that is eh, pretty good. Right? How do you blitz scale pretty good? Nobody says, oh, I really want to tell someone this was pretty good. Oh, I've just got to share this with my friend. That was not bad. No, people want to share that which is ridiculously good. And I think that in the case of Next Generation Foods, in the case of Next Gen Foods, one of the things that helps Next Gen Foods is the fact that the product stands out. And I said, well, maybe other people's products have caught up or something. I don't know. So I went and I bought all these different products that were available on the marketplace. And I tried them out. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are so terrible. And in comparison, this product is ridiculously good. So ridiculously good played a role in getting me to go ahead and invest in the company. Now, the last thing I'll say about ridiculously good is I think that there's another element, and Andre's heard me say this multiple times now, I think that the other element in NextGen being ridiculously good is taking advantage of the ability of the food not just to replicate the traditional meat experience, but to create supranormal stimuli, to go far beyond what meat can traditionally do. So one of the examples I give is Popeye's, which is a great fried chicken restaurant that has a fantastic chicken sandwich, makes something it calls its chicken hand. And what it is is a chicken breast that's been cut into sort of five mini strips. And the reason it's appealing to people is it gets more breading on it. It's more crunchy and it's a great experience and people like that. But obviously you're limited in what you can do there because you're limited by the actual size and geometry of a chicken breast. Now, all of a sudden, with Tyndall, I can think of doing things like, can I 3D print the ultimate crunch for fried chicken? Or can I do something that infuses it with the ultimate flavors, going beyond what was ever possible in traditional chicken that is meat-based chicken? And thinking about how we can go beyond just as good to insanely great and better than anything that has ever existed on earth before is how we get to ridiculously good and how we spread this. 
Absolutely agree. I got a crate full of it delivered on ice on my doorstep and I used it myself. And, you know, you can imagine I have tried even the the beta versions of many, many foods uh, in the alt protein world. And this one blew me away precisely because, as you're saying, they took such a creative approach to the form factor. Why limit ourselves to the current specific form factor of a breast or a nugget or something? Let's make something that can be whatever you want. It was brilliant. So Chris, yay. Thank you so much. I got to say, you don't need to go to business school after listening to just this one hour. It was amazing. Thank you. And let's do it again sometime. Fantastic. And if all the listeners can just write me a check for that $80,000 I just saved them, we can split it, Rachel. I think that'll be a great thing. (laughs) That is awesome. Thank you, Chris. Really glad to have you on the Ridiculously Good podcast. My pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. To get the freshest updates on Tyndall, follow us on Instagram at Tyndall Foods.